Well, happy Father's Day to you, to those in this room, those who are watching online. Online, can we all just shout happy Father's Day on the count of three? One, two, three. Happy Father's Day. What a joy it is to honor dads. I want to honor my father, Dan Bohai. He is currently preaching the gospel somewhere in Illinois. So, Daddy, if you watch this on your six-hour drive home, I love you. I honor you. I'd like to honor my father-in-law, Joe Woosty. Everybody say, hey, Joe. He's one of the main reasons I married my wife, Haley. Okay, that's not entirely true. He's on the list, though, somewhere of importance. I have an amazing father and father-in-law and family. And I'd like to honor both my grandparents. Both my grandfathers are still alive. I'm such a blessed man. Dr. Don Owens and Jim Bohai honor you guys. And I have many spiritual fathers. How many, how many would have, say that they have... Biological fathers, adopted fathers, or spiritual fathers, they want to honor today. Can we just lift our hands in honor? We bless them. We thank you, Father, for the, the influence that we've been beneficiaries of. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen and amen. We've been in a series through the, the book of First Peter, and I just want to continue the conversation. We have really easy stuff to go over today, so let's just get right into it. Amen. To give you a little bit of review, if you have a handout, who needs a handout? Raise your hand. We have plenty of handouts. For those who need a handout, raise your hand and Brother Terry can come by you. We talked about last week how theology, our vision of God, who he is, what he's done, and what he's doing is supposed to form our ethics, how we're to live. Our minds must be alert and sober so that we're able to live with the end in mind and respond in real time to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. For believers in Jesus, we talked about that we have four pillars, theological pillars, that we can rest all of our activity upon. All that we do rests upon these four things, and there's more, but four in the book of 1 Peter. One, our eternal hope. Everybody say hope. Number two, our pursuit of holiness. Everyone say holiness, the holiness of God. Number three, the fear of the Lord. Everyone say, fear of the Lord. And then number four, the call for deep love for one another. Everyone say, love one another. And so this is the framework. We're coming out of this section in 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'll just quote the few verses that lead us into our passage today to, give you your, to get your bearings. For you have been born again. That's a good, way to, good place to start, amen. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. So what are two things we know about the Word of God? It's living and, one more time, it's living and enduring. Through the living and enduring Word of God, for all men are like grass and all of their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So those are the few verses leading up to our passage today. So Peter's talking about the word, the power of it, the enduring nature of it, that it's alive, that it's effective, that when God sets about to do something, he does it in collaboration and partnership with his word. Someone say, his word has power. His word is alive. And, uh, and, and what we're going to go through today, it's not a small 
tasks that I feel before me, we're going to go through the various words, at least one of the main words that are swirling about us culturally, and how the Word of God has something to say about those various words. And as believers, we build our lives upon the Word of the Lord. So in light of this, Peter writes, this is the Word of the Lord, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore, everything I just said, rid yourselves of All malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave, say crave, pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so Peter just got done telling us that one of the evidences of being a spirit-filled, living hope recipient, eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus our Lord, one of the sure signs or fruits that that's happened in you is you love one another. Come on, someone say, love is the fruit of a life transformed by the love of God. And so Peter's saying, in light of that, the word's working in you, it's living It's enduring. You've been born by the imperishable nature of it. Now you deal with people. And come on, someone say, all of us are at varying levels of how much the word's working in us. How many would say, Chatty, I've got a little more work that he needs to do in me than the guy or gal next to me, probably. And so Peter anticipates that. Remember, Pastor Peter, he's an overseer of regional churches in modern-day Turkey. And so he's saying, guys, you've been born again, you've got living hope, you're pursuing holiness, good job. Now, here's some things that if you don't address, they will grow up and destroy the community that I'm trying to build. Malice, deceit. Malice is that ill will, that desire to harm others through our attitudes or actions. We never struggle with that. Deceit, when we pretend to be something, our motives, our ulterior motives, we're working angles and agendas Hypocrisy, it's literally in the Greek, it's a, being a, a, someone who plays the part. They put a mask on, they live one way one, in one place and another way. In, am I talking to anyone today? Envy, envy is the opposite of contentment. Envy is I want what you have and I'll get whatever it takes to get it. Slander, this can be our words or our attitudes or our actions. That which, is, that's, that which accuses and destroys those around us instead of builds up. So how many would say we can't be passive when the word calls us to rid ourselves of these things? I said it in my teaching I did this week on the grace of God. Grace, the grace of God is not opposed to you and I's effort. The grace of God enables our effort to cooperate and operate as new kingdom citizens of Jesus Christ. And so when Peter's, he he just got done talking about the glory of their salvation, all of chapter one. Now he's like, guys, but here's the ongoing work you're going to have to do because these things will creep up if you do not address them. So everyone's saying, I'm about to rid myself of these community killers. But here's why I love the gospel, why I love the scriptures and why I love Christianity 
It's not just that we perpetually put off or destroy. Literally, the language of rid yourself, it was many think that they read this during baptism because you'd rid yourselves of your old garments, your old clothes, and you'd put on the new self created to be like Jesus. What I love about Christianity, it's not just about what we put off. It's about being filled with an alternative reality. Many religions can talk about being moral or ridding or traveling this mountain or this you know, consciousness. and many. But, and so it's about doing, doing, doing. But Christians know that if we'll do our part, God does like the massive heavy lifting. And it's not just what I don't do. It's now what I'm empowered to do in the grace of God. And so Peter says, if you're going to rid yourselves of these things, you're going to need to be feasting on an alternative source that will source and sustain you to live out of your new identity. He calls it the pure spiritual milk of the word. And I love this language. Everyone say the word crave. I love that Peter uses the word crave. I have, I've had, well, my wife had four babies and I'm the father. Um, awkward. I love the language he uses here because when you see a kid who is still breastfeeding, you don't have to teach them to crave or long for the thing that keeps them alive. They will let you know when it's time to eat. And I want you to know the reason the church is so often filled with malice, hypocrisy, envy, and slander is because we're just trying to be good people. We're not just called to be good people. We're to be feasting on the provision of the Word of God. <clears throat> we're not called to just be, you know, we vote right, we're decent, we're upright, we're moral. No, we're meant to be feasting on the pure stream of the Word of the Lord, the Gospel, the Scriptures, and all the Scriptures point to a person, Jesus. And so... So Peter tells us the way you overcome all five of these community killers is in that community be drawing your life from a different source. How many would say we can't afford to be full of the thing, same things that the world is full of, that it would defeat the purpose of being the people of God? And the only way you and I will have something counter to offer a culture that is feasting on malice, hypocrisy, deceit, envy, hatred, slander of every kind is if we're drawing our lives from the word, the pure spiritual milk. And so we're called to crave. Everyone say crave again, to crave. And I just pray, Father, this is one of the things that God's given me since I was 16. Father, I pray for a craving to arise in the hearts of our people. That we would be a scripture-feasting, gospel-centered, Jesus-focused, kingdom-oriented people in the name of Jesus. I ask that the Bible is dusty or if that app hasn't been opened in a, in a few, few weeks or months. Father, I'm asking that you would put an insatiable craving and longing for the word in our people in Jesus' name. Can I move on? Everyone say amen. I got work to do. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, do I have any satisfied customers in the house that he is good? When you've taken a drink, when you've experienced something of the goodness, the kindness, the tenderness of God's love, his ability to take your heart full of all of those community killers, you begin to feast on his goodness I love that passage. We all quote, taste and see that the Lord is good. The very next verse is equally epic. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The implication is once you've tasted, where else are you going to build your home on? 
Where else are you going to set roots down? Where else are you going to build your life like Brother Lance led us in singing than in the goodness and kindness of God? All right, it goes on. So rid yourselves of the community killers, right? And be filled with an alternative source, which is the word of God. How many would say, Chatty, I want a greater craving for the pure milk of God's word. I want to know God. I want to know the scriptures. I want to know the the one to whom the scriptures point. And he goes on to say in verse 4, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. I love this language as if it's, it's so, so we're getting rid of community killers by the grace of God. I got to surrender those areas of malice, deceit, hypocrisy. Now I'm learning to crave a different source. Now look at this, as you come to him, this is worship language. How many know we are at our best when Jesus is at our center and he's in the crosshairs of all of our pursuits, our passions, and our purpose? And so I love Peter. He's, he's calling the church as you come to him. And how many know that Jesus, that the Father is looking for worshipers who don't just worship on occasion or on a Sunday or when they feel like it, but whose whole life and lifestyle is as you come to him. Say that with me. As you come to him. As you come to him. As you come to him. How many are thankful that the throne room where grace is found and mercy is given is open 24-7, 365. Turn to your neighbor and say, as you come to him, as you come to him, as you come to him. And I love this. We've already been talking for a few weeks about Peter writing to a people who are oppressed, who are marginalized, who are, who are suffering, who are being ostracized because of their fidelity to the gospel. And here's what I love about Jesus. I mean, I love a lot of things about Jesus. I really love this one. This spiritual house called the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit called the people of God, it's built on a stone that has himself been rejected. We are a community built on the rejected one. Come on, somebody. It's one thing to try to empathize and, oh, I understand your trouble and your difficulty. It's a whole other thing to look to somebody who's actually walked in your shoes and says, I can still build my purpose even in your rejection. I love the church, the church of Jesus Christ of both Jew, Gentile, young, old, male, female, every tribe and tongue is built on the, re- the one who man rejected. But God said, he's my chosen, precious stone. He's the one I'm building on. You can just feel it. Imagine the whole world's almost illiterate, right? So someone's reading this letter to these churches in modern-day Turkey, and, and they're saying, guys, as you come to the rejected one, I know you're exiles. I know it's tough in culture. I know you don't really know up from down and all the swirl, but you're built on a stone that understands what it feels like to be exiled, what it feels like to be lonely, what it feels like to be rejected. Don't lose hope. He's still the cornerstone of the church. That gives me great hope. We're built on the rejected one. 
which says it doesn't really matter what happens out there. In him we are accepted and we can boldly and confidently build a life upon the, rege- the, the ability for God to take the rejected one to make him the precious chosen one upon which the church of Jesus will overcome and last for all eternity. It's good stuff right there. Peter says it like this, you're the elect of God, chosen, cherished, adopted, accepted, but you're exiles in the world, rejected, ridiculed, sojourners towards the new Jerusalem. How many know this is just how it is? If you're, if you're, what did Jesus say in John, in the upper room discourse, John 15, if the, if there's no difficulty in your life, I'm I'm not saying, be mature, help me. I'm not saying go look for suffering or being a jerk or holding a picket fence or whatever or sign or But I'm saying, Jesus is like, if you're following me, there is no way around it. It's eventually going to bring you into hot waters from the world, period. If they ridiculed me, they will ridicule you. I mean, I'm so thankful Jesus just came right on multiple occasions, just told us, this is how it is. But what's better? To be an exile in the world, which its pleasures and pursuits are temporary, they only last for a, a, a blip, or to be the elect of God, to be chosen to reign and to rule with him forever. What's better? So Jesus says, to him who loved, it says in Revelation 1, what is this priesthood? I, I don't want to wear a white, what does he mean priests? What does he mean a spiritual house? Speaking of what God has done through Jesus, it says this in Revelation 1. To him, read it, actually read this one on the screen with me. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. One more time. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. I love this. Tony Marita, who's a brilliant preacher and teacher, says this. As priests of God, every Christian can take God to people and witness and people to God in prayer. You see that priestly, like, 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 so if you have to know a little bit of the Bible, in the garden, God made Adam and Eve. There was no temple. It was a garden temple. They lived, they ruled, they reigned. They were partners. They were the image of God. They tilled, they created. They were supposed to take what was happening in Eden and expand its borders out into the earth. Because they didn't want to do things with God, they wanted to instead usurp and be God. They were banished from the garden, right? And they fell. They fell hard. Their their own sons, one son killed the other sons. I mean, the fall had immediate impact, immediate brokenness, relationship with God, relationship with our brothers, relationship within, and then thorns and thistles, relationship with creation. All four were broken at the fall. But from the beginning, this has always been God's desires, that we would be priests and kings, that we would be partners. We would be those who would image God to the world. And as we spend time in his presence, we would then image who God and what God is like to those around us. And so he calls Abraham. He says, Abraham, you're going to be a priestly nation. And then 400 years of slavery. Moses up the mountain, tabernacle, temple, Jesus shows up, and finally, through the cross, God's original design for humanity is restored. We're all priests and kings again. Which is to say, 
We all get to live in close proximity, communion with, and now we share in his royal mission, which is to bear witness to his gospel in all the earth, kings and priests. Now it is not one man or one tribe or just the super spiritual that have access into the presence, that have an anointing of his favor and power, that have authority to do his bidding on his behalf. Now every single born again of the imperishable seed of the word of the gospel, every person's a priest and every person has, a, has the opportunity to rule and to reign with King Jesus. That's what it means when the Bible's like, you're a priest. Now don't think caller, think original design. Original purpose. Communion with and dominion. Communion with dominion. I say it like this. I like this language. It's helpful to me. It's the privilege to press, right here with me, to press into Jesus and to pour out for Jesus. That's what priests do. We press in and, and prayer and worship and fasting, confession, all the stuff we do. Worship, and then we have the privilege to go pour out for Jesus in our homes, in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, and our relational networks in God's world. Take a breath. We're doing good. Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, Envy and slander of every kind, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Are you tracking with me so far? This is what's happening in us right now. Right now. We're a priestly people. We're being fed by the spiritual milk of the word. We're, we're, we're asking Holy Spirit to cleanse us of those things that kill our lives and our community. We're saying yes to being the priestly people of God who don't live as an echo of culture, but that have the word of the Lord burning in their bones with a message that can heal and rescue and reconcile. Press in and pour out. Say it with me. Press in and pour out. But the scripture goes on, and this is where it gets, this is just the reality of our day right now. It's happening. I, 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 my, one of my fathers, Pastor Corey Jones, referred to an article where 44%, I may have been off by 2% there either way, of millennials, my generation, are now identifying as atheists and agnostics. They're just by droves, and just go read Gen, Gen Z. We're in an hour where there's a great stumbling, yes or no? A great shaking and a great sifting. And we're going to try to just dabble in why that is. Not going to get all the way to the bottom, but there's more in First Peter. I love First Peter. He goes on to say, for in Scripture. Say that with me. For in Scripture. One more time. For in Scripture. The unchanging, eternal word of God. I want you to know 2021 or 2020 for that matter, God in his sovereign throne didn't go, whoa, global pandemic, didn't see it coming. 
Whoa, the racial injustice and riots. Whoa, oh my goodness, the political scene in America. Oh my word, he didn't go, whoa, four in Scripture. How many believe there is one it's, who's not like a, a victim of history, but he's driving history and he's made provision for every age of history for his people to flourish and to thrive as the people of God. Four in Scripture, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble just does. And a rock that makes them fall. They stumble. Why do they stumble? Because God's mean and he's out to get them and he's grumpy and life in him stinks and it's reclusive. No, because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. We see this, like the, the, the rejected one, Jesus, in his rejection, God and his sovereign, perfect, eternal plan actually fulfilled his purpose through the rejection of Jesus. We call it the cross. Where the rulers of this age, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, could not see the hidden glory of Jesus. If they had, they wouldn't have killed him. Acts 2, 22 through 26. But with the help of wicked men, the holy, perfect, just God accomplishes his purposes where the enemy thought, ha, the Son of Man hangs naked and exposed, when in reality, on the cross, that naked man stripped the principalities and the powers of all their authority over humanity and over creation. It's the epitome of, a of, pull of pulling a fast one. And so in his rejection, he actually is being placed to be the in immovable stone of Zion. In his rejection and through his cross and the vindication of his father, the, the father says, this son of mine, this, this son who is going to inherit the nations, the king of David's everlasting kingdom, the throne that can never be shaken or usurped again in its place over the cosmos, I'm going to place my son and I'm not going to move my son. He is forever going to be the reference point upon which the people of God build their lives. See, I lay a stone in Zion. Say it with me. I lay, I, he laid a stone in Zion. Zion is the city of the king. It's the, it represents the, the kingdom of God. It represents the, the city, the new Jerusalem, the new creation that's coming. And I want you to know we live in a generation, many people have said this, most recently Mark Sayers, everybody wants the kingdom, everybody wants Zion, but they want to ignore the stone upon which Zion is built. This is why there's such an epic stumbling happening today. We don't want to face the man who was crucified in our place. We don't want to have a showdown with the one who in his rejections, in his rejection and in his wounds alone is life and forgiveness and reconciliation and resurrection and salvation found. It's a stumbling stone. But God has placed his stone and he will not change his mind. Somebody say amen. amen. 
So one of the main stumbling blocks today, and you don't have to be an expert in sociology or the sciences. I'm certainly no expert. I'm doing my best to grow and being informed. But one of the mass stumbling stones today is something called critical theory. Who's heard of it or watched some social media or whatever? It's everywhere. It's like every story, every sentence. You're all probably smarter than I am. But I want you to know that one of, the, one of the difficulties with wanting to build a utopian, human progressive, without reference to God and God's will and God's wisdom and God's ways, and certainly without reference to Jesus and the gospel and the substitutionary atonement and the resurrection and the work of God's spirit in the heart of the sinner to make them a saint, if you, don't, if you ignore that and you say our vision is still the kingdom, you can't start from a different place and end in the same destination. Did that make sense? So if my blueprint for what I think Zion or the kingdom or human flourishing looks like, if I have a blueprint that ignores the very architect and alpha and omega of the only everlasting kingdom and story, I will never get to the end because I'm launching from a different place. And so I did not give you an exhaustive good grief. Don't, I'm not, I'm not, you're not dumb. This is not an exhaustive, there are so many billions of resources and beautiful books and podcasts and teachings. But I just wanted to show you and give you tools on the handout that you can go investigate yourself against the scriptures and the spirit of the Lord and the historic Christian faith that you see critical theory and Christianity there may be a few crossovers, but few at most you see from top to bottom, from foundation to the end, it's telling a different story. Theology, Christians believe in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A God who is the creator, the sustainer, the one who breathed life into existence, whose word assigned the function and the purpose for all that is created. In critical theory, there is the rejection. There is no meta-narrative. There's no story. There's no God to whom we're accountable. And there's no objective story from which we can draw meaning. So already they're launching from wildly different places. For believers, we build our lives around the God who has chosen to reveal himself. For critical theory, there is no one to whom we're accountable. And there's no meta-narrative from which we can draw meaning and purpose for life. Anthropology, Christianity believes that humans were created in God's image to reign and to rule with him. Our fundamental identity in the Christian worldview is that every single person on the planet from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue, that principally they are made in the image of God. They were made by God through his power and for relationship with him. Every person, this is the Christian worldview. Critical theory says you are primarily your race, your gender, or your gender identity, or your sexual orientation. Come on, someone say amen. We see, like, we're obsessed with pronouns and how I identify, but in the biblical story, you're not fundamentally how you identify or how you, you, know, you experience your, your gender. You are made in God's image. It goes deeper. It goes further than what I do with my sexuality or what I do with my ability. I am made by someone for something for love. 
So we see anthropology, it's different, Christianity and critical theory. Sin, every single great story, who am I, why am I here, what's the problem, how do we fix it? That's every story like ever told for all creation. Christianity believes that, yes, we're made in God's image, but all have sinned and are bound and broken and in rebellion against God, and we need saving. That even though we all bear the image of God and we have intrinsic glory and value because we bear the mark of God, all of us have chosen, like our ancestors, Adam and Eve, we've chosen to usurp God's authority. And when we reach for utopia, all we did was fall. So our vision of sin in, in critical theory, and this is huge. This is why, listen, we're going to get to some of the deeper issues here in like 30 seconds. Sin in critical theory is only those who are oppressed and the, the oppressors. It's not that all of us are guilty. It's not that all of us stand morally culpable and responsible. It's not that all of us have broken the will of God. It's those, those oppressors and those who are oppressed. How many have heard this narrative slightly? And the only sin in critical theory is not letting someone live according to their own subjective truth that they, may, they mistake for objective truth. Does everyone know what I mean by subjective and objective? Subjective is what? Someone's perceived experience of reality. It's, so, it's what someone experienced. It's their lived truth. Objective is it don't matter what your experience, it's true. Everyone say objective and subjective. Now, tell me this, does everyone have a subjective experience? But do all of those experiences carry the same weight in their truthfulness or according to God's design and purpose? So, salvation. Oh, I like this. That's what I love. I love it. Salvation. In our sin, there is one who comes to us named Jesus. He lived the life we could never live, perfect holiness. He died the death that we deserve to give us a life that we could never earn. It's the good news. Through Jesus Christ, the sin problem that ails all of humanity has a solution through the slain, slaughtered lamb whom the Father vindicated and raised three days later. Amen. Salvation in critical theory is to be politically active and to overthrow the powerful, to dismantle power structures, and to liberate the marginalized. So salvation, here's what's so tricky about critical theory, is that, that the, like I said last week, every person, if there's no reference to God, if there's no culpability and responsibility to his law, because there's no meta narrative from which we all derive similar meaning, if every power structure and institution is is deemed as skeptical at best or as an object to be overthrown in reality. And if all of that is a race, then all you're left with is my own experience and my own feelings, and it's never ending. And so salvation, what a crummy view of salvation because you'll never get there. Because none of us are good enough. None of us are just enough. None of us live a beautiful enough life. None of us have the inner or outer resources to get humanity into the utopian society we all long for called the kingdom. We need a divine escort called the king to get us into the kingdom that never ends. And so we see salvation, critical theory and Christian. They have vast differences of what salvation is. Ethics. For the Christian, we don't get to choose 
What we see, hear, experience, see modeled, taught, it's the way of Jesus. And I wrote a paper that I was afraid to give my church, but I regret it. I should have gave it a year and a half ago. There's never a circumstance, a season, a situation, a topic, an issue that believers ever get to take the yoke of Jesus off and say, Jesus, we got this one. Not in our political life, not in our sexual life, not in our family life, not in our workplace, not in our recreational life, not in the political arena, not in our jobs. There's never a situation where believers ever are allowed to come under or from under the yoke of Jesus and say, you know what, Jesus, I know you're the way, truth, and the life, but for this, I need to exert my authority. For this, I need to do what I feel best. Believers do not have that right. Our ethics, how we live, how we talk, how we speak, what we give our lives to, what, 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 and, and, and what endeavors we, we back, what we get behind, all of it for a believer, the ethical life of the believer derives from the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, far too many believers, myself included, are too easy to come out of the yoke and to exert something, even in our zeal or passion, that, that may be rooted in truth, but it doesn't look like the man who is truth. Can we just be honest? Is that not the case? I can say the right thing in the wrong way, and it's not communicated. For the believer, our ethical life derives from the one who is the embodiment of all that is true, good, right, just, and beautiful. His name is Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God. For the critical theory and the mass stumbling that's happening today, ethics are you live out your own subjective truth. And anyone who says don't live how you want, they're, they're an enemy to be toppled or overthrown. And so F, that's why, anyone heard the language cancel culture? The reason what's so tricky about critical theory is because there's no meta-narrative, there's no God to whom we're accountable, it's all about freeing the, the, the oppressed and overthrowing power structures and institutions and individuals. The, the difficulty with that is this, is that until you are not in agreement with the prevailing narrative of the day, you're about to be toppled, which is just exhausting. I, I don't watch Bill Maher on HBO, but a full-on self-proclaimed atheist, not someone you'd really look to to like get your moral bearings. But when I hear people who aren't even believers waving the red flag saying critical theory is going to destroy our nation and our generation, I listen. I mean, I don't listen to it like I listen to the Bible, but when people who don't even have a moral framework built on the gospel and Jesus have enough insight because they still bear the image of God to say, this thing that's permeating culture probably is not going to build a civilization that thrives and flourishes. It only has the capacity to deconstruct and destroy. Okay. Uh, are we doing okay? This is heavy. We're almost done. I'm just trying to do my best pastorally here. There's so much more, but. And then eschatology. Every worldview, even though that's what's so funny about critical theory, it, 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 it says it doesn't believe in meta narratives, but by saying you don't believe in meta narratives is a meta narrative statement. 
Everyone know what I'm saying? To say I don't believe in a story from which I derive my meaning, my purpose, my destiny. My, to say that is a statement that paints a picture and builds a framework for a worldview. That's, it doesn't, it, logically, it doesn't make sense. For the believer, our eschatology, our vision of the end, is that there will be a king named Jesus who will return, who will destroy the works of darkness, will bring salvation, and will judge all that needs judgment, righting every wrong, liberating every oppressed, bringing every oppressor to his or her knees. There is a judge coming named Jesus. Our vision of the end is not that humans will figure it all out and just, you know, progress enough and get technological and and scientific breakthroughs and eventually everyone will be this and we'll be good. We believe that there is someone who is going to come who will be the judge and king over God's new creation. Oh, that's a good truth. The early church, many of whom were slaughtered for their faith, they loved the idea that Jesus was going to come and make it all right. And then finally, eschatology for critical theory is that there's really, there's, it's an endless cycle of deconstruction. Because at its core, it's to dismantle institutions, family, God, marriage, business, inst- all, all, all the, occult, the police, first responders. It's to dismantle and to say, oppressor, they have power. But if all you have the ability to do is deconstruct, to dismember, and to dismantle, you do not have power to rebuild. And I, as I've studied critical theory, at its heart is to, to, to topple those that are at the top and bring them down. But logically, what happens when those who are saying, you're an oppressor, therefore you need to bow, when they get to the top, then someone else, by their own theory, is supposed to come and topple them. And then topple them. Come on, somebody. This is why it's an unsustainable vision for life and why the Christian worldview is the most compelling. And how many feel it? Can we just pause? I'm almost done. How many feel just exhausted because you just read another story? Something's toppling. Our cities are burning. How many think it's not the time to be less Christian, to search from, for some other stone to build so we can save face and be more culturally relevant? It's time to get to the scriptures, and the scriptures all point us to a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the stone in Zion. Oh, he's the stone. Here's, but here, pastorally, I'm going to turn the corner here. What I tried to do here is to do my best to give simple terms, but I am not a dummy. There are volumes written about it, both Christianity and the theories and culture. Can you all say amen to that? I want to be on record to say that. This is, and the reason why critical theory is so popular, especially with my age and younger, is because it attaches to little, little shards of truth. In other words, can we all say amen to that people who have power have the capacity and often do abuse their power. Can we all say amen to that? That's a pretty easy amen. People who have power oftentimes misuse that power. Amen. People who are oppressed are oppressed by power actually do have some truth and a large percentage of truth to, to experience and to express what they have experienced in regards to being on the other end of a power encounter that didn't go in their favor. Can we say amen to that? This is so stinking obvious with just universal history. The problem is 
as if the complexities of humanity and of the human experience and God's world can be reduced to a binary oppressed oppressor category. They can't fit into those, only, those, those two categories. How many would say life is a little more complex than that? Is there legitimate oppression? Are there legitimate oppressors? Yes. Does that mean we overthrow every institution and say, you have power, therefore you are bad, therefore you need to be deconstructed, you need to be defunded? No, that's not the Christian worldview. Are you tracking with me? I read the best article his name is William Durnell. It's heady. It's scholarly. But I'm not, you guys are all smart enough. I'll try to find the link. I'll just send it to you later if you want it. He read the most, he, he wrote one of the most helpful articles. Because what Pastor Chad is doing up here is not saying, hey, everyone, here's your one-liners to dismantle critical theory so you can show all your friends that Christianity is better. I want to give you an invitation of a framework to go pursue the truth of God's word not so that you could be a jerk or so that I could be a jerk, but so that we would be able to have a meaningful conversation so that we could eventually say there's a better way to live and to tell the story. Please hear me. Please hear that as your pastor, as your brother and your friend. So William Durnell wrote this. He's a scholar. He's in, he's in the institutions in, in that world. I thought it was the most helpful thing when talking about Christianity and critical theory, I just have a few screens of a quote and then I'll be done. He says this, if critical theory as a method, everyone say method, looks at particular bits of evidence through the new lenses in critical theory, I'm sorry, am I, I, I gotta get this right, I gotta get this right. This is so good, I don't wanna blow it. If critical theory as method is like looking at bits of evidence through new glasses, so in other words, he says, and I agree, if you read the Bible, you will read about oppressed people and the God who liberates the oppressed people. Can you say amen? We, it's like the children of Israel. So what he's saying is when you look at critical theory, just as a method, you're able to put the glasses on and take them off because they're not your main lens, but you can appreciate and understand and grow in hearing the stories of those who have categorically been oppressed. Can we say amen? So he's saying as a method, it can be helpful to put glasses on, to hear the stories of those who've been oppressed. He goes on to say, critical theory as a meta-narrative is like looking at life through contact lenses. How many know contacts are a little harder to get out and off than glasses? And so for those like my generation, millennials and younger, everything is through the contact lens of critical theory. It's oppressed and oppressor. Destroy every institution because it's oppressive by nature, right? Until so we're the ones in power, and then what? It's just a, but it's a contact lens. That's when critical theory is a meta narrative, and this was the money slide. Then critical theory as a mood is like looking at the world through one's tears. Method. Glasses. I can take, I'm, I'm, I have to read it. I can see that. I'm going to take them off. As a meta narrative, as your, like your overarching story of your life, it's like contact lenses. It's all I see. Believers 
you can look at critical theory and the oppressed and the oppressor and the complexities of race and racism and all of the various issues of our day. It's like looking at the world through someone's tears. You got to read the whole article. I'm going to finish. These tears, which can at times distort our vision, should not be ignored, denounced, or rationalized. Gosh, this quote, he's so smart. Look at this. They should be recognized for what they are. Profound, but not permanent. A true word, but not the last word. Eventually, they will be wiped away, first by our hands and one day by the Savior's. So what Chad is saying by giving you this little, hopefully helpful paragraph, we don't just go, all oh, those idiots, critical theory, all the young people, and Black Lives Matter. And No, l- listen, I re- I don't, I, I, it's so funny. Yesterday I told my wife I wanted to, I wanted to do a post on Juneteenth. And, you know, everyone saw posts about Juneteenth, and it's a national holiday. And I'm so scared because the people in my church who are like, dude, you're liberal, or people who aren't right-wing or whatever, they're like, finally Chad speaks. And I, I'm not, I'm up here telling you, like, it was like an hours of going, gosh, is this something I'm excited about? Yes, like slaves being, finding out they're free. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. For like 18 months, though, I don't know that I've actually said the word black lives matter because of what it's attached to. As a meta-narrative contact lens, do, does the institution Black Lives Matter, the destruction of the family, right, the, the erasing of gender roles and gender realities and identities, am I behind that? No, those are not my contact lenses. But do I regret not being more of a voice to say, I see with you through your tears of actual historic oppression as a black person. Yes, I see your tears. This is why this article was so helpful, because in the church, we are so either or, right or left, blue or red, but in the kingdom, sometimes you got to see through someone's stinking tears. And this is why I love this. I'm not saying just go, you know, be arrogant and be, like I said, don't be a jerk. I love David Durnell or William Murrell's helpful. As believers, critical theory is not our glasses or our contact lens, but in but as the church, we are called to weep with those who weep. Can I get any man? We are called to enter into the sorrow, whether it's from the black community, the Asian community, through those in first responders and police who are, I, my own neighbor is a police officer, and I remember right after George Floyd, and it's not to say that that didn't shake an entire generation and the entire black community, because it did, but he looked at me, not even as a believer, scared for his job, and I'm like, God, if I speak to this, and I, my, the problem is I've been watching Mark Driscoll, and he's just super, doesn't care what people think, and he just says stuff. But he's like, if you don't ever speak to issues, you'll be hit from every side. And when I read this article that my own mentor from afar, John Tyson, suggested, I'm like, finally, language I can get behind. Critical theory as lenses, meta-narrative, no. Life is way more complicated than oppressed and oppressor. Critical theory as glasses that I can see and experience Okay, if that's what you do, that's great. But critical theory, seeing through tears, even though the vision may be distorted, but we enter into the stories of others to be a faithful, peaceful, non-anxious presence and the ability to wipe tears and then point to the solution named Jesus Christ. 
Did that make sense? I'm not saying did you agree with it all, but did it at least make sense? As a church, we have to be able to stand in the messy middle and to refuse to be a caricature from the right or the left. We aren't called to fit in any system or paradigm that man invented. We are meant to be those chosen. That's how the passage ends. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And honestly, if we're too far this way or that way, we won't even have an opportunity to declare the praises of the one who called us out of darkness. Are you hearing me? We are called to something way harder than right or left. It's called the kingdom of God. To not budge or bend or bow. Our claim and our confession is Jesus Christ is Lord. And when you want to erase him, I'm sorry. I can listen to your pain. I can listen to your experience. I can weep with you because I love you, because you bear the image of God. But I have to leave the stone in his place because I can't afford to build on any other foundation. And for those who say, Jesus is so pure and holy, he doesn't hang out with those who are broken and need a savior and healing, you say, sorry, thanks, but no thanks. Jesus' entire ministry was about setting the captives free, liberating the oppressors, forgiving sinners, healing the sick, and raising the dead. And so to be too moralistic, you know, pharisaical, or to be super no truth, whatever, we stand right in the center and say, Jesus is the stone that the Father has placed in Zion. We will never get to the kingdom without the king and reference and reverence for him as the Lord. This is the, this is the painful, how many would say this is the messy middle, but where else are you going to stand? Not in a policy or a platform or a political party. I'm going to stand on the living stone of Zion. He wants to anoint us to love this. Listen, what is the God's great missionary strategy for the chosen royal holy priesthood of those who aren't stumbling over the stone but building on him? We declare the praises. Everyone say, we declare the praises. So we see with tears. We enter in empathetically. We listen. We're not the answer men or women. But as we empathize and listen, to voices and stories and don't just caricature and write off. As we enter, incarnation is still the first step towards ministering the gospel, living in someone else's shoes, amen? He came to us and lived among us. But out of that place, our vocation, when the tears have amply fallen, we're able to declare the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and brought us into light. And if he could do it for us, he can do it for anybody. Any man, woman, boy or girl, any race, any situation, there's hope in the gospel. God's remedy for a crumbling culture that's stumbling over the stone is to raise up a, a different kind of people, the people of God. 
How many want to be those chosen, royal, holy priests who are able to bring God's blessing and love to the world and who are able to take the brokenness, the heaviness, the pain of the world to God and right at the center there's a cross where God has made the two one. This is the gospel, friends. Scrutinize, if you will, with the scripture, but this is our hope and this is our play for this hour and every hour. See, I lay a stone in Zion. Can you stand on your feet with me? Thank you for, thank you for going with me on that journey. It says this, to live as members of God's kingdom is to incarnate the vision, perspective, and relationship of God's kingdom in our daily life. To be priests of God, read it with me, is to be agents of God's redeeming, healing, liberating, and transforming grace to a broken and hurting world. Do you think our world needs the priestly people of God in this hour? Oh my goodness, I hope I've made that clear. Who carry the message of Jesus' power to transform, to heal, reconcile, to right every wrong, to forgive, to make the two at enmity family. This is what the gospel does. So Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that this message, that this word that we found from 1 Peter 2 would so cut our hearts that we would never be the same. I pray that we would see with a Christ-saturated, word-focused kingdom vision. Jesus, you are our rule for life and ministry and purpose and mission. You call us to follow you, and you are the greatest example of what it looks like to be a priest of God. Father, our world needs healing it needs forgiveness. It needs reconciliation. And so I, we just say, here we are, like Isaiah, here we are. We live among a people of unclean lips. We have unclean lips. But could you cleanse us? Could you anoint us? And could you send us out into the world as priests, kings, and queens who'd be able to declare the praises of our God, Jesus Christ? Lord, would you send us in the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit in Jesus' mighty name, we all said amen and amen. Thank you, guys. Happy Father's Day.